Yeah, so we're going to do, so I'm doing the Santa Claus, right? So who's actually seen the Santa Claus? Okay, not that many, because I did this in Switch last week, and of course none of them were born, none of them had seen it, so it was kind of like, oh. So I'm going to give you a, a bit of a, um, a synopsis, okay, of, of the story, just so you understand, right? So Scott Calvin is a successful toy salesman who prepares to spend Christmas Eve with his young son, Charlie. Scott wants Charlie to maintain his belief in Santa Claus despite not believing in Santa himself. Scott's former wife, uh, Laura, and her psychiatrist husband, Dr. Neil Miller, stop believing in Santa at a young age and feel that Charlie needs to do so as well. On Christmas night, Scott and Charlie are awakened by a noise on the roof, and Scott investigates and finds a man standing on his roof, whom Scott startles into slipping and falling to the ground. Now, the dead man's body disappears and leaves behind a red suit and a business card stating that if anything were to happen to Santa Claus, whoever is responsible has to put on um, the suit and continue where Santa left off. Ensured by the card that the reindeer know what to do, um, and to please Charlie, Scott dons the suit and spends the rest of the night delivering gifts before the reindeer take him back to the North Pole. Once they arrive, Bernard, the head elf, explains to Scott that because he put on the red suit, he is subject to the legal clause, a, te a technicality known as the Santa Clause, meaning that he has agreed to accept all of Santa's duties and responsibilities and gives him 11 months to get his affairs in order before reporting back to the North Pole on Thanksgiving. Confused and overwhelmed, Scott changes into pyjamas provided to him and falls asleep. The next morning, Scott wakes up in his own bed and believes the events of the night before are actually a dream until he sees that he's wearing the pajamas that were given to him. Now, over the course of the following year, Scott undergoes a, a drastic transformation where he gains a large amount of weight along with an increased liking for sweet food, including milk and cookies. Later, he develops a thick beard that grows on his face in spite of his attempts to shave it off and uh, is immune to trying to dye it any other color other than white. Scott's altered state brings Laura and Neil to the assumption that Scott is deliberately attempting to confuse Charlie, and they successfully petition a judge to suspend Scott's visitation rights. Devastated, Scott goes to Laura and Neil's house on Thanksgiving. Desperate to help his father realize how important he is, Charlie shows Scott a magical snow globe that Bernard had given him, finally convincing Scott that he is, in fact, Santa. After Scott asks Laura and Neil for a minute to talk to Charlie alone, Bernard turns up and transports both Scott and Charlie to the North Pole. Now, believing that Scott has kidnapped Charlie, Laura and Neil contact the police. On Christmas Eve... Scott sets out to deliver the gifts with Charlie in tow. However, upon arriving at Laura Neal's home, Scott is arrested. The elves send a rescue team to help him escape from jail. Scott returns to Laura Neal's house and manages to convince them that he is Santa and asks Charlie to spend Christmas with them as they are his family too. Now, Laura burns the court papers banning Scott's visitation rights and tells him that he can visit any time. Bernard then appears and tells Charlie that if he shakes his snow globe at any time, his father will appear. Before leaving, Scott gives Laura and Neil two Christmas presents that they never got as children, which caused their disbelief in Santa. Shortly after he leaves, Charlie summons Scott back home with the snow globe. Laura agrees to let Charlie go with Scott for a short ride in the sleigh, and Scott embraces his new role as Santa and leaves with Charlie to deliver the presents. So this movie actually came out in 1994, which was the year that Craig and I got married. 
So I dragged him to the movies to see this, and he was absolutely thrilled, as you can imagine. And what I love about this movie in particular, there are a couple of things I really love, and I loved how it explained the whole how Santa gets down a chimney when there is no chimney. I love how Santa's, how Santa's sack has uh, always got gifts that just appear whenever he needs it. The other thing that I absolutely love is that they used the red coat. See, Santa's coat is, um, is quite a spectacular thing. And if you've ever actually seen a real Santa's coat, not the, the fake mall stuff, but if you've ever seen one that's been done and designed properly, they're absolutely spectacular to look at. And I love the fact that they also used um, the Coca-Cola Santa. See, a lot of people don't realize, but in uh, 1931, Coca-Cola launched a advertising campaign using Santa. And what they did is they gave us the Santa with the red coat. You see, previous to that, Santa looked vastly different. He had m multiple different colored coats, but Coca-Cola, and you have to admit, it's a great testimony to their advertising campaign that if you say to somebody now, draw Santa, they're gonna draw him with a red coat. But so I absolutely love this movie. And I mean, we can get into an argument about whether you should talk about Santa or not and blah, blah, blah. Um, and we can have that conversation later. But as a tale, it's a really good tale. There's some really awesome little things that you can draw out of that. But it was sort of making me think about, in the Bible, there's another story about a coat, right? There is Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat, which Andrew Lloyd Webber kind of termed that phrase, and now in modern churches, people will say, oh, it's Joseph's Technicolor dream coat. So we think about Joseph and his journey, right? So Joseph was the son of Jacob. Jacob can also be known as Israel. And so J uh, Joseph is actually um, the 11th of 12 sons that Jacob has. We're not counting daughters, uh, but just of the sons, right? So he's the 11th of his, uh, of his 12 sons. And he was born to his second wife. He's the firstborn child of Jacob's second wife. So he kind of held an odd position in the family because although he wasn't the actual firstborn son of Jacob, he was Rachel's firstborn son. And it came about, of course, if you know the story well, and you find it in the book of Genesis, it spans through about three or four chapters, and you know that Jacob loved Rachel, and by extension then was also going to love Joseph, right? And the story kind of picks up, and it says that Joseph was about 17, and when he was about 17 was when his father gave him the, the amazing, wonderful coat. And you have to think about this in the, the journey of his life, right? And so he comes along and he has this wonderful coat. And he, in his story, he also, about the same time he gets given this coat that none of his other brothers got, that's kind of key, um, he also um, starts having these dreams. And he has a couple of dreams and basically what he says is things to his brothers like, I had a dream that we were all bunches of wheat and everybody's wheat's bowed down to my wheat. Now, you can imagine how this is probably going over with his brothers about now, right? Then he has another dream, and it's along similar lines as, as, you know, he was there and everybody else's stars and stuff are bowing down to him, including his parents. And, and so you can kind of see that this is probably not the smartest thing a spoiled, entitled 17-year-old should be saying. Because as much as Joseph is probably nice, we know that he was beloved of his father and mother, so yeah, he was spoiled. We know that he was entitled because he's been given gifts that other people aren't given. And that's not to say that Joseph isn't a nice kid, because you can still be nice and still be spoiled, right? We know people like that. 
And then Joseph takes it upon himself to uh, correct his brother's behavior and tell his, his dad about some of the bad stuff that's going on. Now, by now, you must understand that his relationship with his brothers is probably not great, right? And we all know someone who, who's a bit like that. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Do you guys know people like this? I know people like this who are a little bit entitled and a little bit think they're a bit slightly better than everybody else and, and a little bit clueless because he's obviously not picking up that his brothers aren't happy with how he's behaving. So one day, his brothers are off working and Jacob's milling around. And, uh, so Joseph's milling around and Jacob says to him, I want you to go and see your brothers and take them some supplies or whatever, blah, blah. And he's like, yep, okay, Dad, I will go and do that. So off he goes. And his brothers see him coming. And they're gone, oh, it's him. He's going to tell us all how great he is. He's going to tell us about how, you know, we're all going to be serving him. He's going to be telling us. And so the resentment, which has been building probably for a while, reached that point where they started talking about, we don't like him, we don't want him around, let's kill him. So you know this relationship's pretty dysfunctional. And I suspect, to be perfectly honest, that Joseph is completely oblivious. Because, to be honest, if you know 17-year-olds, they literally don't think outside of themselves. It's not because they're bad, it's not because they're selfish, they literally, that's just how you think. You think about yourself. So Joseph is blindly walking into this situation. Thankfully, one of the older brothers says, let's not kill him, because, you know, that's pretty bad. Um, but what they decide in the end is that they're going to, um, they put him in a pit, and then they sell him to some traders as, as a slave. So Joseph then has to go, and, and basically we don't hear about his, his, his dad or his brothers again for a while. And so Joseph goes from this pit. He then goes, becomes a slave. And to start with, it's going pretty well for him because they actually put him in charge of that household. Um, but unfortunately, his owner, Potiphar, has a wife who obviously has a roving eye. And she decides that Joseph is a bit of all right, and so she wants to kind of, you know, move their relationship into something else. And Joseph is very wise, and he flees from this situation. He runs from this situation. Now, how many know that a woman scorned is a dangerous thing? So what she does is Potiphar's wife gets quite upset with him about this whole situation, and she then comes along and she says to her husband, he tried to attack me. Now, what I find interesting is I don't think Potiphar actually believed her because by rights in that, that time, Joseph should have been killed. And instead, what he does is he sends him to prison. So Joseph's life has gone from being this entitled son who was spoiled to in a pit to being sold into slavery. That's slowly working out well because you know, he's been put in charge of stuff to now he's in prison. And then he spends about 12 years in prison. And while he's in prison... He's making the best of a really bad situation because he manages somehow to earn the favor of the jailer or the head guy in charge of the, the prison, and so that's all great. And while he's in there, he comes across two guys who've been put in prison by Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, uh, Pharaoh put these guys in prison, and they have these dreams. And Joseph manages to interpret their dreams and interprets them in such a way that what he tells them with the interpretation actually comes to pass. And so this is awesome, and so one of the guys ends up by dying and being executed, and the other guy gets restored back to his position. And another two years pass, and Joseph's still in prison. And so things, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, Pharaoh then has a dream, and no one can interpret what's going on with this dream. And so suddenly the guy goes, oh, wait, there's a young Hebrew guy in the prison. He can interpret dreams. You need to go and talk to him. So they, they get Joseph out, 
And sure enough, he hears, what the, hears about the dreams. And then he interprets the dreams. And then he also offers Pharaoh some advice and says, this is what I think you need to do to overcome so that the bad stuff doesn't happen. And Pharaoh goes, this is brilliant. This is amazing. He then puts, makes, um, makes Joseph the second in charge, makes him uh, royalty, makes him one of the, the, the big top guys um, and puts him in charge of doing exactly what it was he said. Some time passes, a few years pass, and because of part of uh, what had happened with the dreams was around a famine, the famine hits the land, and funny enough, we suddenly flick back to his brothers and his family, and they are starving, and they're in famine, and they know that Egypt has food. So they then, of course, begin this journey, and they come, and they have to go and see Joseph to get this food. They don't know it's Joseph, and a few things happen along this way, and eventually, after some toing and froing, Joseph reveals himself, and they go and get his dad, and everything's wonderful, and basically, life ends on a high for Joseph, right? That's, that's a really quick summary of about three or four chapters of Joseph's life. What I love about this is if you look at the journey that he went on, it, it was nowhere at all what he thought it was going to be. If you turn to um, Genesis chapter 37, verse 3, it says this, Now Israel, who was Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other children because he came along when he was an old man. So Israel presented Joseph with a special robe he had made for him, a spectacularly colorful robe with long sleeves. Now what you've got to understand is the, this robe was so special, it was actually only given to royalty, to princes. It was a prince's robe because for starters, it was full length and it had long sleeves. You cannot work in a coat in that day and age that had long sleeves and that was full length. You couldn't do it. So if you were given a coat like that, they did not expect you to do any work. You didn't have to do anything. Not only that, but it was heavily embroidered with many colors. So this was a coat that you didn't just throw on when you're just gonna you know, roam around. This was a coat for someone special, a coat for someone who was of royalty, a coat for someone who did not have to work. They did not do any type of physical labor. So you can kind of see why Joseph's brothers weren't happy. But if you think about it, right, here he is, when he's 17 years old, given this coat that tells everybody around him that he is a prince, that he doesn't have to work, that everybody else has to work for him, and he's just going to take of the fruits of their labor. Then the next stage of his life, he's in prison. He's become a slave. But how does that relate? Because over here, he was given this coat, and he was a prince, and everything looked great, and his life was brilliant. But over here, he's in a prison, and he doesn't have a coat anymore, and he doesn't have anybody doing things for him. In fact, he's having to do all the work for other people. And as it moves on, and of course, the story of his life travels on, and at the end of his life, he becomes... At the age of 30, they reckon he was 30 years old by the time he became second in charge of Egypt. So here he is now, 30 years old, and he has suddenly been able to embody what the coat said. Because the coat said when he was 17 that he was going to be a prince. The coat said that he was going to be the ruler. The coat said that other people were going to serve him. Now, when he was in the prison, was that happening? No, it wasn't. When he was a slave, did that happen? No, it didn't. When he became Pharaoh, he embodied everything that that coat said. Well, that's all well and good, Trim, but how does that relate to us? 
so glad you asked. <laughs> you see, when we get saved, when we experience salvation, when you begin to follow Jesus, when you decide to become a disciple, whatever terminology you want to use, there is this absolutely beautiful exchange that happens. And what happens first and foremost is you're taken out of the kingdom of darkness and you're translated into the kingdom of light. You go from condemnation into salvation. You go from being an orphan to a child who is fully adopted, a child of the Most High God. You go from not having a hope to not only having a hope, but also a future. And at the same time, Jesus comes to you and he takes from you your righteousness, which is as filthy rags, and he swaps it for his robe of righteousness. And this is the most amazing thing that happens. And it says in um, Isaiah 61.10, I am filled with joy and my soul vibrates with exuberant hope because of, my or because of the eternal my God. For he has dressed me with the garment of salvation and he has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness. But here's the problem. When you first put on that robe of righteousness, just like Scott Calvin put on Santa's coat, it actually doesn't fit. And it doesn't fit because we're still struggling with stuff we still tell lies or we slip up and we swear we lose our temper we can't quite get it together and so we have this time this season where we struggle a little where we're screwing up where we sometimes even get hurt and we think to ourselves this isn't what it was supposed to be i wasn't i was supposed to be the prince with the technicolor dream coat and i'm sitting in prison or i've just been accused of rape or i've become a slave and we get hurt through the journey and what happens is sometimes we just sit down and we go i i can't this wasn't what i signed up for and we've had those conversations do you know what i'm talking about have you ever had that in your journey where you think to yourself God, this is not what I signed up for. Why is everything going south? I thought I was going to be this prince, and I thought these promises, and I thought this. And you find yourself in a situation. But what you have to understand is you actually did sign up for this. You see, when you put on the coat, you fell subject to the salvation clause. You see, our salvation isn't just a moment. We have that beautiful exchange, and yes, you are saved, and yes, you are going to heaven. But when you put on that robe of righteousness, what you said is that you were going to walk out your salvation, that you are going to daily pick up your cross and follow Jesus, that we are going to make that journey. And if you watch the Santa Claus, you'll see Scott Calvin go from fighting, becoming Santa Claus, and at the end of the movie, he embodies who Santa Claus was. We see in the life of Joseph, if you read through it, we see him starting off as an entitled prince. And if he was given the role of running Egypt at that point in time, he actually would not have done a good job because he would have made it about himself. And then he had to go through all these different things to get to the point where he could embody who he was supposed to be, which was a ruler of Egypt. Now, that's not to say, please do not misunderstand, that, that if bad things happen, God causes it. That is a false belief and it's a bad theology god does not make anything bad happen to anybody we live in a fallen world bad stuff happens people are jerks people hurt you sometimes by mistake sometimes it's accidental truly it is people don't always hurt you on purpose but sometimes they do and that's not to say that god made that happen but if you allow him he will take you from being hurt and upset and broken and he will bring healing to your life and you will through the journey be able to embody who he has called you to be one of the things that 
I, I have struggled with watching. See, I've, I've been walking with God now for 30 years. I worked it out. Just a little over 30 years I've been walking with God. And I was, when I first got saved, to who I am now is vastly different. I fit the robe a lot better. Do I fit it perfectly? Absolutely not. Do I still screw up? Totally. Do I still not understand what God is doing? Yep. That is it. But this journey, this walk that we're on, is the best thing you will ever do in your life. It's been 30 years and I've not regretted a day. It's been 30 years and I still say it's the best decision I've ever made. I can still look back and remember exactly how I felt when I gave my heart to follow Jesus. If you do not pick yourself up, if you are still sitting down because it hurts and it's this and it's that, you're going to have to start standing up. What deeply concerned me through this whole COVID thing is how many Christians just sat down. They just sat down. Yeah, it was hard, but it's not as hard as some other stuff that we're seeing in other countries. Yep, it was scary because you're going to lose your job, but that's not the end of the world. Where is your trust? Is your trust in this government? Is your trust in, in this world? Is it your trust in what God has said? If God has said that he has made you to be the head and not the tail, then that is what he has made you to be. If God has said that I want you to be the ruler of Egypt, or I want you to be the Santa Claus, or I want you to be the head of this and the head of that, then he will work it through. Doesn't matter if you end up in prison. Doesn't matter if you end up as a slave. God will see it through. It's the journey that we are on. And he has given us so much support for this journey. You may not recognize some of the support because it's not looking how you think maybe it should look, right? The support that you get is, first and foremost, is the word of God. The word of God is vital. It should be daily bread. The amount of Christians who don't read their Bible every day is concerning. How can you know him? How can you have an intimate relationship with him if you are not reading your word? It's, it's as simple as that. You've got to read your word. Spend time in worship. Put it on in your car. Put it on in your house. My children have grown up listening to worship every single day of their life because that's what I play in our house. I very rarely play anything else unless it's Christmas carols. <laughs> Which, you know, as we saw today, can also be worship. So that means I should be allowed to play it on other months, not, no, just still just December. Oh. That was worth a shot. He also gives us people in the church as supports, as people you can come alongside. Are you in a connect group? If you're not, why not? That is where your support comes. When life in this journey becomes hard and you feel like quitting or you just want to stop and you want to sit down, who do you think is going to come alongside you and pick you back up? It's going to be the people in your connect group. So if you're not in one, you need to get in one. We need to be intentional. My whole, the whole point of today, really all I wanted to get up and say to you was, over this season, over December and January, be intentional about what you're going to do next year. Make a decision. See, I, I don't get off on... Um, New Year's resolutions, because I'm like, I always break those anyway. So my New Year's resolution is not to make any New Year's resolutions. But I believe that we need to have an intentional plan for our year. So you know what? There are some really awesome things coming up, and you need to think about it. Think to yourself, do I love God enough? Am I following him closely enough? Have I at any stage sat down and I'm still sitting? Am I still struggling with my walk? And you know what? There are some awesome things we're doing this coming year that you need to get involved in. One is we're going to be running night school on a Monday night. And this is by Zoom. So it's not like you have to come out of your house. You can stay in your pajamas 
Oh, no, wait, it's Zoom, so people will know. Don't stay in your pajamas, but it'll be all, all good. So we've got night school you need to get involved in. Get into a connect group. If it isn't on the night that works for you, put your hand up to run a connect group. Every single one of you were called to lead. Not one of you was called to follow only. So you need to be putting your hand up. Get into a team to serve. We need more musicians. Some of you guys out here, some of you guys out here can play instruments and you just haven't been putting your hand up. And the reason, like, I think my daughter is amazing. She doesn't, she doesn't play the keyboard. No one taught her. She taught herself because we had a need and we needed to fill it. So I watched her and, and Carol's, because they're technical, she's struggling, but she's getting there. Well done, baby. <laughs> but there are some of you who can play, and you're not. Why not? We don't expect perfection. You saw how the whole thing went wonky today? It's all good. We do not expect perfection. Hosting teams. Some of you need to be able to put your hand up and say, yeah, I can actually host. I can do that. What deeply concerns me is the amount of Christians who are sitting. We do not have time to sit. We do not have time to sit. Things are rapidly changing in our world, and if we do not begin to stand up, you're going to be left behind. You may get into heaven, but you're probably just going to be cleaning commodes. <laughs> I have no scriptural backing or theological thing for that, so don't, don't, don't quote me on that. But I just wanted to encourage you. You're on a journey. I don't know where on your journey you are, but maybe you feel like you're tripping on your robe. Maybe you feel like you haven't quite got it together. That's okay. Just keep moving. Just keep moving. Just keep going forward. Be intentional this next year. What are you doing to grow yourself? We have a Revive Conference. It's going to be in July, June, sorry. Revive Conference is in June. Put your hand in. Talk to your boss. Take the time off work. Grow yourself. Begin to be intentional about growing yourself. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27 says this. We all know that when there's a race, all the runners bolt for the finish line, but only one will take the prize. When you run, run for the prize. Athletes in training are very strict with themselves, exercising self-control over desires. And for what? For a wreath that soon withers or is simply crushed or simply forgotten. That is not our race. For we run for the crown that we will wear for eternity. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't let my eyes drift off the finish line. When I box, I don't throw punches in the air. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after all of this, after I have brought the gospel to others, I will still be qualified to win the prize. You just gotta keep your eye on the prize. If you wanna reign and rule as Joseph did, keep your eye on the prize. If you wanna look as good as Scott Calvin did as Santa at the end of the movie, Keep your eye on the prize. So as the band comes, I just want to quickly pray for you. Pray that you're going to look for an opportunity to be intentional. So why don't you bow your heads. Father, I thank you, God, for people who are in relationship with you, for people who do come on a Sunday, Father, to have that time and that moment with you. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will just begin to speak to them. 
over these next couple of weeks, Lord, that they won't get lost in the busyness of the season, but, Father, that they will take a moment and think to themselves and speak to you about what do I need to do to be intentional? What do I need to do to seek out a a place with you, God? What do I need to do to become more intimate with you, God? What do I need to do to be able to wear your robe of righteousness as well? So, Father, I pray, God, that there will be a shift of our focus, not about ourselves, not about our plans and our purposes and our desires, and but God, that will begin to make them about your plans and your purposes and your desires. And God, that as they do so, Father, they remember the joy of salvation when they first got saved. God, that they would remember again when that, that flame originally lit within them. And God, that this season would fan into flame that love for you again, that first love that love that they had that they drove everybody else crazy with because all they wanted to do was talk about Jesus. Because all they wanted to do was focus on Jesus. God, that we will put you back in the center. That it would be God first. God first in my marriage. God first in my home. God first in my work. God first in my church. God first in our lives. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. Holy Spirit, just speak to people. Holy Spirit, just speak. So right back at the start of the when we first started talking about the movie night, when these this thing of movies, um, I really felt God give me a word for a couple of people here. And I have been hesitant on giving this word um, because I think other people might misinterpret what I'm saying. So please, please hear, hear it. Christmas, Christmas is one of those times where it can be really joyful and it can be really stressful, but there's also that sense of loss because somebody isn't with us who we think should be with us, right? And sometimes that sense of loss, particularly when we've been having that sense of loss for a number of years, it can carry over into Christmas and so that Christmas loses the actual meaning. I haven't always been this excited about Christmas. This, is, this was intentional. I did this on purpose. And I did this on purpose because I was going through a season where we did the Christmas thing, but it wasn't as joyful and it wasn't, it had lost the meaning of Jesus being the gift. It had lost the meaning of of Jesus being the center and the reason and the celebration for that. So if you, so for my, if you've been out church for a while, you know this, but our first baby that we lost was due at Christmas time. Not, Not on Christmas day, but just Christmas time. Uh, then the second baby that we lost, we lost on Christmas Day. And that really sucked. And then God did a miracle and we had Madison. And, and that, was, that was amazing. Uh, and then we had lost another baby. And we lost that baby in the December. So I'd always kind of had this sadness around December a little bit, right? It's like I know that our first baby is going to be 21 this year. 
um, I still feel that. I still feel that. 21 years later, I still feel that. And then we had another miracle and we had, we had Seth, right? And Seth was supposed to be born in the January and he was actually born in December, a couple of days before Christmas. And so I actually believe that he was, he was my redemption of those babies that we'd lost. But Christmas was still a little down. You know, we did, you know, it wasn't anything major. It was just, I just lacked that ability to celebrate. And uh, I realized that I had to find that again. Because as much as stuff had happened around December and that whole week and, and even on Christmas Day with losing, you know, that second one, I was just like, you know what? I have to find my ability to be able to celebrate Jesus and what Christmas actually means. So I intentionally set out to do that. So I intentionally began to, to search for ways to find that, that ability to celebrate who Jesus was. And so I, that's when I started, buying the de extra decorations. It wasn't just having a tree, it's having other stuff. It wasn't about only listening to Christmas carols randomly. I would deliberately listen to Christmas carols. And I'm not talking about, you know, like silly Christmas songs. I'm talking about Christmas carols. And I would spend time in worship with those carols. And what I discovered is the more that I did that, the more that God revealed to me the joy that is Christmas through Jesus. And so now for me, it's about a celebration of who the gift that God gave us. Because it says, for God so loved the world that he gave. And you know when he gave, people say, oh, he gave it Easter. No, he gave it Christmas. He gave it Christmas. That's when he gave his son to us, was at Christmas. And you know what? You can actually have Christmas without having Easter. Uh, you can't have, sorry, you can't have Easter without having Christmas. And to have Christmas without Easter is absolutely pointless. So the two are tied together, but the word that I have for people, you need to find the joy in Christmas again. You need to find the celebration about Christmas again. You need to find Jesus in that Christmas again. Because even though you may have experienced a loss, there is still joy in that season. It doesn't mean you don't miss them. Craig's brother who passed away a few years ago, his birthday is actually Christmas Day. So we take a moment, but we also take a moment to believe and remember the celebration that is Jesus. The celebration that is Jesus. Because that is what is going to actually carry you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's not about happiness. It's not about a moment. It's the joy of the Lord.